John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, except this show is the first show of 2024. So I'm looking forward to uh, having many more for this year. Uh, we're starting off today with uh, an accident that just happened in the news, and it involves an Airbus A350 aircraft that unfortunately struck a Dash 8 that was on the runway in Japan. So without further ado, because we have a guest with us today, and I'd like to have you introduce Jack. Hi. With us today, we have Jack Grecki, a former airport rescue and firefighter from Boston Logan Airport, a longtime friend of mine. And we brought him in today to pick his brain and his expertise. He's been uh, retired from uh, Boston's Logan Fire Department, and he's now been engaged in various places around the world in airport fire and rescue. And And uh, he's a wonderful source. And I don't know if he knows it or not, but he has now signed up for flight safety detectives. <laughs> he can run, but he can't hide. He, he will be anchored on this program from henceforth. <laughs> uh, welcome, Jack. And you know that, you know, you have no options here. You are <laughs> a member of the Flight Safety Detectives team. <laughs> uh, understood. Uh, th thanks, John, for that that amazing introduction. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you guys. Yeah, well, well just don't show all that duress in your face. <laughs> okay. If you want, we'll, po we'll post your credentials on our website. But I wasn't about to read that because it would take the entire program. <laughs> okay. So transitioning from that, and we're going to get to your expertise. Todd, to introduce uh, the accident and, and some of the early things that we know thus far since we're recording this show a couple of days after the event. So, Todd, I'll just turn it over to you and uh, let you do a good summary for us. Well, thank you. And thanks again for being with us, Jack. Uh, the event in question was on uh, January 2nd, 2024 at Haneda Airport in Tokyo. This involved uh, Japan Airlines A350-900 that was on a domestic flight from Sapporo to Tokyo with 367 passengers and 12 crew. Had, from all uh, 
early reports and from the videos we have of this, it appeared to have a normal landing on the runway. This was in the early evening in Japan. And it struck a Dash 8 that was partially or fully on the runway. We're not quite sure yet. And the uh, A350 had a runway, uh, went to the side of the runway. And all 367 and passengers and 12 crew were evacuated. And there were no fatalities there. Unfortunately, five out of six people on the Dash 8, which was a Japanese Coast Guard Dash 8, were killed. The captain of that aircraft survived. And uh, the aircraft, an A350, is one of the two major wide-bodied airliners that have a composite fuselage, the other being the 787. And this was noteworthy in that this is the first serious crash of either the 787 or the A350. And uh, fortunately, no one got killed. And because it's composite, this aircraft took about eight hours before the firefighters were able to uh, put the fire out. And as you can see from some of the pictures we're showing in the background, for those of you on the video version of this, the aircraft was pretty burned out. Forward fuselage was almost burned completely to the ground, and most of the rest of the fuselage was, was destroyed by fire. Well, fortunately, that fire didn't spread very quickly. You know, thank God that the fire was, from the videos, it appears it was following the airplane down the runway, and it gave all those passengers some extra time to get out of the airplane. They did evacuate quickly, but the fire was not engulfing uh, the slides, uh, even though the nose wheel collapsed, both the front slides were able to be used almost like ramps. You weren't sliding down them, you had to run down them. And uh, the back ones, the slides were uh, sufficiently long so that they did reach the ground. We have seen in previous accidents where the nose wheels collapse or the airplane goes off the end of the runway on a hill and the, the tail is so high that those slides don't touch the ground and they become useless. So it, they had a lot of things going for them. Prior to the pandemic, I had the occasion to fly on Japan Airlines domestic flights. And my recollection is that there were no monuments uh, in the cabin. And by monuments, I mean uh, lavatories, galleys, coat closets. They're outfitted with, with uh, first uh, coach seats extensively in the inside of the airplane. So that helps egress because passengers seem to, to uh, not like passing through those monuments. They slow down and it, it can impede or slow down the, the evacuation. Fortunately, we're still holding to 90 minutes, uh, uh, 90 seconds, not 90 minutes, 90 seconds on the evacuations of airplanes, regardless of how big they are. And so that really puts the burden on the manufacturers to make sure that we can get these passengers out of these airplanes quickly because speed at that point in time when something happens is important. Again, the passengers on this airplane were very, very fortunate that the fire was slow to get started around the airplane. And it yeah, allowed, and, it allowed the chutes to be used. Yeah. And you, and you make a good point, John. And, and, you know, there's a lot of video floating around right now, both in the media and of course on the internet. <clears throat> and there's um, stories that conflict with each other. Some people said the fire started immediately. It was heavy, thick smoke in the cockpit and in the cabin area. But then there are some passenger videos floating around where, yes, there is smoke in there, but it wasn't heavy. It didn't really obscure visibility uh, until, of course, it became fully engulfed. But by then, 
a majority of the passengers had already evacuated. So I think from an investigative standpoint and those lessons learned and, and what we can really develop out of this particular accident is putting together a very good timeline as to when that fire actually broke out. We know that it was on landing, but uh, the residual fire burning under the aircraft, how much time before burn through, what were the they so orderly because it's evident they were orderly to get out in a very short period of time. All of those positives, what did the flight attendants do to ensure that uh, those folks evacuated? Because like you said, time is really money as far as getting you know passengers off the airplane with minimal injuries or no injuries. And of course, uh, looking at the fire, was the composite material of the aircraft, fuselage itself and other parts of uh, the structure, was that a positive or a negative? Because we saw that, of course, once that fire breached um, the hull, that entire airplane was an inferno. And we've seen similar accidents. Uh, you were out in LA when uh, US Air landed on a, uh, on a regional airplane. And um, yes, there was a post-crash fire, but it didn't do the amount of destruction um, that this particular airplane suffered. And the fact that Todd brought up that it took him over, over eight hours to extinguish this fire, pretty much a lot of it is due to that composite material and, and some of the other magnesium parts that are on airplanes. And, you know, using Jack and his expertise, how are, I mean, fire departments, is there a universal standard around the world for not only fighting, of course, this aircraft fire, but now with these new composite structures, has there been a change in philosophy on how to fight an aircraft fire like this? Greg, you know, what Composites has done for, for aircraft rescue and firefighting, we, we call ARF, uh, is it's increased the ability, it's, it's increased potentially the survival time by increasing the burn through time of the fuselage. Uh, so until until that aircraft burns through, until the heat and products of combustion are inside the airplane, uh, that gives us time to get there, to get set up, to to establish a an an, an initial incident action plan, uh, to get an eye on what's happening, what direction the passengers are going, are they coming off doors open, door closed, uh, the the composite materials uh, really are not a hindrance to to extinguishment. Uh, we had some concerns initially before we had time to, to practice uh, as to whether we could pierce them as easily with our, our piercing applicators that would allow us to push uh, a nozzle uh, with a point using some type of force, usually hydraulics, to get inside the airplane and, and discharge agent when that's uh, appropriate. Uh, but we can we can pierce composite just the same as we can pierce dura aluminum and and, and other uh, skin uh, uh, materials on the aircraft. Uh, when you ask about universal, um, the the only thing that's universal is is the initial concept that what we're trying to do is open up evacuation paths, exit paths, uh, and then. Uh, protect the occupiable portions of the fuselage. So if we don't know what's inside, we look at it and say, well, th there's, there's room in there for, for, for people to be, then that's what we want to protect. 
Typically, the fire is coming from under the airplane in that it's pulled fuel that is typically released from an aircraft that, that searches for and ultimately finds an ignition source. And uh, that's what we want to keep that impingement from, from coming up against the aircraft uh, and finding a spot that it can burn in and, and, and enter. One of the things that uh, we talked about off air, <clears throat> myself, John, and Todd, was the fact that in some of the video, it's obvious that one of the engines was still running, if not both. And um, whether that was because the crew couldn't shut it down because of damage to the aircraft or whatever, the fact is you still have a running engine. So, of course, that's going to be a great source, ignition source for the fuel. Is there a protocol that when you arrive immediately on scene that you evaluate whether or not you have engines running and do you do anything to terminate that operation before you start trying to uh to protect those pathways because you know uh, an engine of that size becomes a big vacuum cleaner and not knowing the power setting on there you're going to have people that as they evacuate are walking right across the front of that engine or even behind which creates of course um, exhaust and turbulence, which could blow slides and, and fan the flames, if you will. Sure. So the, the first thing, uh, and not just in aircraft rescue firefighting, but as as approaching any fire, the first thing you want to, uh, to accomplish is a 360 degree assessment. <clears throat> so we want to size up everything that's going on there. Uh, so on something, an aircraft of this size, uh, you'd like to think that, that an aircraft of this size is only landing at an aircraft at an airport that has multiple ARF resources, right? More than one truck, more than one person's eyes. And when we arrive at an aircraft accident, particularly on the runway, it's kind of ideal for us, uh, makes it a lot easier. Uh, there, there's a, a, a plan. Each airport has got some type of an SOP that says the first aircraft is gonna to go to the uh, first crash truck arriving, our vehicle is gonna to go to this position. You know, the incident commander has been determined and then we make an assessment of, of all of those things. So we've got your initial report might be, yeah, we're on arrival, we've got an A350, his, his gears collapsed, or we got fire showing from such and such a location. We, number one, uh, our, our one door is open, slide is out. That whole broadcast, everybody is giving their assessment. The incident commander is putting all of that together and uh, and 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 determining how we're going to handle the the initial portion of this incident. So you mentioned, you know, specifically the the engine run. Uh, my 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 first crash was in a 1982 World Airways at Boston, one off the end of the runway. Uh, that high mounted engine was running. And, uh, well, you know, it turns out the cockpit was in the water. So, you know, there, we had no communications with the cockpit, uh, but it actually cut that incident in half, right? Because it was that grade. You couldn't get from one side to the other side uh, without running through that, that jet stream. Uh, and it, it did. It blew me down the runway several sets of lights before I could roll onto the other side. Uh, during other uh, incidents that, that, that we've had, well, the first thing we hope is that we've got communication with the cockpit. So many airports have established a uh, what's called a DEF, a designated emergency frequency, where the ARF commander can uh, 
based on a protocol that's already been established at the airport. Uh, the tower assigns a frequency. The, power, the pilot of the aircraft is put on the same frequency as the ARF commander, and we're able to communicate with them. And, you know, from something that is not nearly as serious as this, where maybe we're dealing with just that engine fire, we can talk to the captain, uh, find out how's, how's things inside, Cap? How are your passengers doing? Oh, you know, they're really getting panicky or no, they, they, they're, they're pretty good because they see that you guys are working. Uh, we can, we, when we have an aircraft that we're doing an investigation on, uh, we can request that an engine be shut down. Uh, you know, they understand, you know, if they've got an APU or if they, if they stop on the runway and they're still continuing on taxiing in, they'll typically leave all their engines at idle. And if we have to go onto the airplane, we'll communicate and see if we can get an engine shut down or, or take a safe route, you know, to get underneath that airplane. Uh, we can't shut down the engine from the outside by normal means. Uh, I have seen times when we've tried to use agent uh, to choke out that engine. We'd rather not do it that way. But if you know, if, if people are in harm's way, we'll, you know, we'll try anything. And it looked like in this particular instance where you have a lot of fire, you have a lot of people um, mingling around the airplane after they got out, and you still have an engine that's you know that's running. Um, again. Is that a priority to to snuff that engine so that you don't cause uh, any kind of injury and possible ingestion? Again, depending on on uh, sure. power setting and that kind of thing. So, and, and if you look at some of the uh, photos <clears throat> and videos that we have of this and the reports, uh, by the way, we're two days after the event, but there have been some briefings. One of which was there were three exits that were used in the evacuation. And we have from the passengers enough video and, and and still photos to show that the front left and right were both used. Both slides were deployed at a fairly low angle. And the left rear door was used and the slide was at a higher angle. And as you can see from the video, if you're watching the video version of this, uh, the folks coming out of the, the front right were evacuating in front of what seems to be a running engine. There were sparks coming out the back. I assume chunks of the engine were being thrown out the back. Fortunately, no one was trying to evacuate from the right rear doors because otherwise the jet blasts and the debris would have uh, been in their way. But fortunately, in this case, the three exits they were able to use, there was not fire and debris in that area, and they were able to evacuate safely. Attack methodology. Okay, so now you got all these people out, and okay, you assume that hopefully everybody is out of there that, that get out of there. What's the attack methodology? Do you start underneath the aircraft because you know that it's probably a fuel-based fire? Are you dousing through the top of the fuselage or through windows? What's what's the firefighting technique to knock that fire down in short order? Well, again, the, the if there's pulled fuel underneath the fire, you want to contain the fuel fire. Uh, when there's when there's fire coming through the top of the fuselage. You know, when once that fire vents, a fire is going to vent, whether the fire vents itself or we vent it. If we can vent it, so if if you if you you know you wonder why they chop houses and roofs of houses to roofs holes and roofs of houses that are on fire is because we want all the hot gases and the and the, the heat to to follow that up, create a chimney. Uh, if you create a chimney in the other opposite end of the house from where it's burning, the house will burn all the way to the chimney you created. Okay, so you want to ventilate in an area that makes sense in a place that the hot gases and the smoke wants to go. 
so the this the fire up in the in the overhead of the of the aircraft uh if the if the whole fuselage is already consumed inside to the point that it's coming out the top that fire coming out the top is not my concern not initially i want to i want to stop the fire from uh impinging on the airplane i want to get a get foam on top of the fuel to separate the vapor which burns from the liquid that doesn't burn and until we get all the people off and that's the priority once once the people are off it, it you, you it's almost defensive at that point if if the plane continues to burn and nobody's at risk well i'm not going to put firefighters inside that airplane if there's if there's nobody in there to risk them for so we'll do a surround and drown after everybody's off and 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 we'll eventually put the fire out. But understand that when we arrive, we only have the water that's in our tanks. So in the United States, if you're following the minimum requirements for the FAA for an A350, for, for an index E aircraft, all that the airport is required to have is three trucks with a total of six thousand gallons. Now, our most of all of our index E airports carry more agent than that. But it's not like you see in the city where the fire trucks stop, they drop a line to the hydrant, then they drive to the fire, then they've got a sustained water source. We have a what, what we carry is what we have. And so we're going to use that to protect the occupiable portions of the fuselage, to protect the rescue paths. And hopefully we have enough agent to, to contain the fire until the people are off. When everybody's off, now we can worry about getting a secondary supply of water and and bringing in tankers or laying line all the way across the airport. We're we're, we're no longer worried about human life. We're fighting a fire at that point for Lloyd's of London. We you know we jumped over one important point here. Those passengers did get off, and many of them were off before the firefighters were there. But and I don't know who yet. It's, it hasn't become clear. But somebody gathered those passengers together put them in groups of 10 and marched them down the runway, all holding hands so that they contain them in groups of 10, which means there was 36 plus groups, but they control the numbers and they controlled where they were. And I don't know who did that. Was that airport protocol, what it was, but it was very effective in getting those passengers controlled away from the airplane and in an easy way to account for 367 passengers. So and I think, and, and, we need to look at that to see how that happened. And, and again, being very disciplined like that and people following, you know, lockstep. Yeah, not in the U.S. Many, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many of those people grabbed their carry-ons and brought them with them. Here in the U.S., you know that we've seen a lot of accidents where people are carrying their suitcases and everything else, thinking that <clears throat> their whole life is in that bag. And, you know, that hinders a, an evacuation, slows things down. You know, is there a different level of discipline um, in this particular accident that we can learn from um, and then employ worldwide? Um, one of the other things that <clears throat> we've talked about in the and John, when you were out in L.A. with the U.S. air accident, what were some of the uh, firefighting issues that uh, came up that either we've fixed over the years and incorporated or they still exist 
And, you know, Jack can chime in on why or why not we've, we've changed techniques or responses and that kind of thing. Well, a couple of things that I know that changed out there. One was because of the FAA's procedures where they would allow airplanes to take off from midfield. And the reason why we do that is if you've got a small airplane like this as a Dash 8, and we have many small airplanes, commuter airplanes at our big airports, they would allow them to go out to the middle of the runway, something clear the, near the terminal, and take off from that midfield point. Well, the incoming airplanes are not looking for an airplane that far down the runway. They're looking at the end of the runway for their touchdown uh, position. So that helps make it invisible. And that, that has been now not allowed by the FAA here in the United States. It, I just read the tapes, the, the transcript of the communications between the tower and the airplane, the Coast Guard airplane. And it appears that they also were not allowing a midfield takeoff. They were sending this airplane down to the beginning of the runway, the landing point on the runway. So I think that they've learned from that. The other piece that we learned, important piece that we learned in Los Angeles was the coordination between the fire department and other groups on the ground. You know, one of the problems that the fire department had, it wasn't clear in the very beginning that there was two airplanes involved because the the, the 737 crushed and totally uh, enveloped the little airplane in the fire. And that took a few minutes uh, for them to realize that there was an airplane underneath it. And uh, those people all perished and it's, you know, it, could have could any of them have survived? I don't know. And don't by know. Los Angeles, you mean the 1991 uh, runway collision at LAX involving a 737 with I can't remember which airline it was, uh, American? No, you, uh, US, US Air. Air. US Air. <laughs> and yeah. a uh, smaller uh, regional Swear. aircraft than a Dash 8. Uh, yep. It was a Swear Engine Metroliner. And if you're watching the video, we pulled a couple of uh, graphics from a uh, person on, on Twitter, of all places. And I don't know if these are relatively the, the right size, but this person had two graphic representation of the 7350 coming at you, one with the dash eight at like a 90 degree angle, and the second with them lined up with each other. And in both cases, it's clear that the uh, the diameter of the propellers are such it could have sliced into the wings. Mm -hmm. And also from the video that we have of the landing and the crash, uh, looking at it several times, you can see the A350 coming in from the right. And there is an explosion at an area that had a group of reddish-looking lights. I suspect that was where the Dash 8 was. And since I didn't see any landing lights on that, you can clearly see the landing lights in the A350. There was no landing light or anything like that visible on the surface. So either the Dash 8 was pointed away from the camera, or it was aligned with the runway and didn't have the lights on, which gets to your point earlier. Uh, if you're landing at night and there is a airplane on the runway, are you looking a third of the way down the runway when you're trying to land the first thousand feet? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of operational issues we're going to get to. I just want to ask Jack, you know, given uh, what happened with Asiana at San Francisco when uh, our response showed up, they're they're dousing the area with foam, and unfortunately, uh, three passengers, you know, were not seen and struck by emergency response vehicles. Have we changed anything here in the States or even you know, universally around the world as to, especially at night, rolling up on an accident like that, not knowing where people are, 
Um, how is it that you approach that? Um, I know you've, you know, you're trying to get to the aircraft, you're ready to, uh, to pull line and do your thing, but what about the, the, the crap on an airplane? Well, uh, to, to, to go back to the, the L.A. accident, uh, that accident was one that was used as a, uh, a factor in uh, a, a big improvement that, that came to low visibility response for aircraft rescue and firefighting. Uh, that accident uh, in LAX, uh, American 1420 at Little Rock, uh, landing in poor visibility. Uh, the airports were getting something called SMIGS at the time, Surf yeah. Surface Movement Guidance Control System, where, where the airplanes were really, really smart, and, and they could land technically in zero vis. Uh, I think they were only really allowed to land in 680 RBR or something like that. Uh, but for us on the ground, uh, we're saying, hey, wait a minute. When, 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 this, air when this airport is fogged in, soup we know that there's no flights being conducted and so although we may still have emergencies on the airport you know i, I was my airport was an island right you know the fog was the first place to hit logan mm -hmm. uh, so anyway a a big study was done by the fa tech center in atlantic city and uh they started looking at this technology uh from uh and this, this is in 1996 i believe when they first came out with the advisory circular for low visibility response uh, for the, at the time there was 10 SMIGS airports, uh, which uh, provided us with forward-looking infrared camera capabilities on trucks, which from some time, you know, in, in the couple of years after that, the FAA started paying for on all vehicles that were funded by, by federal money. As, as well as a GPS system used in a uh, what's called driver's enhanced vision system so that the vehicles have a, the ARF vehicles responding have a, a, a moving map that, that shows them on the runway surface. Uh, and so now when you're coming up on that US Air and, and, and the Metro liner, uh, they, the, the firefighters found out after the fact that they had actually driven past you know, air burning aircraft and, and had no had no way to see it. There's no visibility. So now we do have capabilities on the trucks for forward-looking infrared cameras. It's it, it's hard to find a, an R vehicle without one now. Uh, our awareness, you know, obviously is a little higher. Asiana in San Francisco was was a very unique, a unique accident. Uh there's an awful lot of things that went right that day in, in terms of what the aircraft rescue and firefighting folks did. Unfortunately, you know, those things didn't get focused on. Uh, in, in this tragedy, uh, nobody really knows how this uh, young, this female, uh, very small stature female, I, I think she was pretty young, who was at one point pinned in between seats in that aircraft, and and may have been brought out of harm's way, and and placed at a time a place that looked like a safe spot at the time, and for whatever reason, you know, it, 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 it there was no continuity to that rescue. That that person was not taken out clear, and this tragedy happened. 
the foam that we use. Now the foam has changed since then, or it's in the process of changing, but uh, the, the foam does blanket and hold in, hold, separate heat. Those floor cameras would not see a person, particularly a person who maybe didn't have any vital signs, but would, would, would not see a person under that foam. This is still one of the human parts that we have to hope that there are enough people. You know, there's a lot of airports that only have one firefighter on one of these ARF vehicles. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd like to think that they, they're not running with the minimum at these big airports, but sometimes they are. And you got to have body people on the ground, boots on the ground. You need people that are walking and pointing and looking. It's dark out. There's big ruts from the tires. There's ruts from the airplane. Who knows what type of what 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 the grade is that we're into. So I'd, I'd like to think that you know since the LA accident, things have improved. Since the Asiana, Asiana hey, there's always a chance that something terrible is going to happen, and and it did that day. And and no, I don't think there's anything that that other than having that knowledge and using that incident in our training that we have more awareness perhaps, but there, there's no guarantee that it won't happen again, unfortunately. And well, Jeff, uh, oh, I'd like to, you know, this is a great conversation. We're going to have more than one show about this because uh, we're only two days after the event. And there's all sorts of things we're already seeing from this. So I think uh, it's a good time to uh, close out this show. And uh, there will be another one following up on this. And, you know, Greg and our special guest, uh, Jack, we usually have a next to last word section. And uh, instead of me doing it, you can have the next to last word uh, section in, in my place. I'll let you go, Jack, since you're the guest. Oh, oh, thank, thanks, Greg. <laughs> uh, look, all, all, I, all I can think of right now is that, you know, in, in, an aircraft evacuation. Every, every I flew twice last week, and and every time I fly, I get angry because I look around at all the people that are not paying any attention to the to the emergency briefing. What when I hear a good brief, I I take the flight attendant aside and 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 compliment them and tell them, you know, why I thought it was so good, and and they always really feel. You can tell in their face they don't they don't get compliments a lot. And and it's so it's so important because when when the when the lights go off and and the cabin smoked out, uh, if if you haven't already done your plan as to where that door is and how to get out, you're, you're going to struggle. Yeah. Uh, and and when you look at the demographics on airplanes, when I'm teaching, I talk to people and say, hey, look, I, you know, my my airport is Fort Myers. When I'm coming down to Fort Myers or I'm leaving Fort Myers during the snowbird migration, I'll, I'll sometimes see 13, 14 wheelchairs lined up at that door. Yeah. We have no emergency. You know, we don't have handicapped seats on an airplane. So where are they? They're in the aisles all the way along the airplane so that they, it's easy for them to get in and out. So the, the evacuation of that airplane is a, is a big job. The flight attendants, you know, what, one to 50 passengers – they can't do it, you know. Yeah. Pay attention. Leave your bags behind. And in in our we've we've got a, we've developed a motto that I haven't heard after this accident, and that is "bag lives matter." Because everybody's so worried about their damn bag that they're compromising the time and escape time of the people behind them. So you know, pay attention. Uh, we're all flight professionals. Pay attention anyway. 
give give that flight attendant your respect and let them know that you're paying attention and that you're somebody they can count on. Todd? Well, when, one of the things that helped us with this show was that there was a lot of video and still pictures taken by passengers who were involved in this. And so far, I didn't see any uh, misbehavior, that is, people taking pictures in places that made uh, put themselves or other people in danger. So my word to those who are out there who took pictures, uh, if you have something from this event, whether you're in the aircraft or outside of the aircraft, please share it with the investigative authorities because sharing it with them and sharing it with the public at large will help us help you in the future. Great, great comments. <clears throat> One of the things that I'm preaching all the time about flight attendants, and like you said, Jack, you know, they don't get a lot of credit because uh, they're looked at as CSRs, customer service representatives. That is not their job. Their job is not to be there to serve you cocktails and, and lunch. They're, they are a CSR, a customer safety representative. They are the primary resource for your safety as a passenger in the back end of any aircraft. And they deserve a high level of respect, just like the pilots, because they have a safety critical job. And your life <laughs> is really depending on whether or not they are doing their job and whether you're reacting to their commands. And I think that the lessons that'll be learned from this particular event and how the flight attendants handled it, how, you know, again, why it was so orderly and so efficient in getting that number of people off the airplane in about three and a half or four exits um, with the airplane on fire like it was. I think those are going to be some very good, <clears throat> excuse me, lessons that will help the industry, especially in uh, future events. And John, with that, I will leave you with the last word. Well, the last word for this show definitely deals with the flight attendants. They did a heck of a job from what we can see so far and ditto on all the comments about passengers not listening, not paying attention. You know, I can understand some of the people like myself and you, Greg, that fly every single week. We can actually probably state the, the, the statements that they read uh, verbatim ourselves. But there's, I see so many people that look like very infrequent flyers on airplanes that pay zero attention. And, and it's so important. So important. So hats off to the flight attendants. And with that, we will wrap this version of Flight Safety Detectives. And like Todd said, we will continue this discussion because now the investigators have to determine how these two airplanes came together on a runway. So we'll be delving into what the investigators will be looking at with regard to the operational aspects, crew training on both, both aircraft, air traffic control issues, um, uh, air traffic uh, controllers, and their particular issues. So uh, stay tuned for part two of this particular uh, show. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, 
We're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.